Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We are out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to today's conversation for this episode of Life on the Line. Angus Horden spoke to Vietnam veteran David Leaf. This is his story. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Angus. Your army experience began at school in the Cadet Corps. Yes, that's right. Yes, um, I had about, I think about three or four years in the Cadet Corps as a trumpeter in the brass band. Um, and we're actually wearing the old blue uniform that was the original uniform for the Cadet Corps as a whole. So that was what was left of the old blue uniform. And uh, otherwise, we did everything else everybody else did and uh, went to camp and the rest and did all the marches and the bivouacs and everything else. Okay, so you begin studying as a dentist, then you join the Army Dental Corps. What prompted that? My father wasn't doing too well financially, I knew that. But also, I, I wanted to, I knew I'd been studying all my life. And I wanted to do something different when I left dentistry. I wanted to go and do something interesting and not just go out into private practice. So I just thought around, I thought, look, it'd be interesting to go into the forces. And of the forces, I thought the best one I would like would be the army. So I applied for what would be a scholarship, which gave me a short-term commission. Um, in other words, I would do one year, they'd pay one year at university, and then have two years to serve. So I then went through the whole interview process and got the scholarship where I was paid a bit while I was at uni and then I had two years to serve after that when I graduated. This is 1967. Australia has an ongoing commitment to troops in the Vietnam War. Did you realise that you might actually get deployed? Well, I actually didn't think it would probably happen. I didn't really worry about it. And they asked me, they said, you know, are you happy to go anywhere where we send you? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, anything for a scholarship, you see. And, um, uh, and I didn't think, I thought, well, I've only got two years. I didn't think they'd be able to prepare me uh, in two years to go to Vietnam. Uh, much, I found out pretty soon that that was not the case <laughs> and, and they had it all worked out. You joined the Army as a captain and your first posting at Singleton is in January 1968. Next up was officer training school, but you were already a captain. Yes, that's right. Yes, the, um, they, you go in as a captain and then they actually train you up to understand the Army. But it, it, it's interesting, you see, when I arrived at Singleton, it was the first time I'd been back there since my camp days. Camp days are completely different. You know, the food was pretty awful, um, which is something which, in fact, the interviewing people, uh, officers, asked me about. 
and they just all laughed. But uh, I went back there and uh, I didn't even know how to put my uniform on properly. I didn't know which way the pips went. So the, the first Monday morning was a bit of a scramble. So that's how much I, I could, knew about the army at the time. Um, with all the new officers' uniform I had to wear. Anyway, I was working. I worked there for about, I think it was about uh, four or five weeks. Um, and then they said, well, you're going down to Healesville for officer training. Now, that's where the doctors, the dentists, and the pharmacists, they're trained to know how to be an officer. They've trained how to understand the army um, and base some basic sort of infantry skills. So you know, you know about two-way radio and things like that, and how to wear a uniform, and and also lots of marching, and lots of basic drill just to get you used to it. When did you find out that you were actually going to Vietnam, and how did that actually feel? Right. Well, we had I think we had about six to eight weeks of officer training. Came back. The next week, I got my um, date on which I'll be going to Vietnam, which would be October. Um, then they, at the same time, they said, gave me the date I'd be going to Canungra, the jungle training for Vietnam. So, in other words, it was all worked out right from the beginning. So how did you feel about that, David? Well, I was, I was quite, um, I, was, I was actually quite excited, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, you know something different. Um, yeah, you know, I wanted the difference in my life, so I, I was really, I was really quite pleased. I, I was scared for my parents because I knew my mother wouldn't like it, but I was actually happy, happy to go. And as was all the other young officers in Singleton, they're all new graduates, recent graduates from Duntroon. They're all vying to go to Vietnam. Tell me about the training for Vietnam. Well, we, we go to we went to Canungra, which is in the um, in the sort of the, the hills behind Surface Paradise area. It was trying to sort of an area which was supposed to be similar to the jungles uh, in Vietnam. It was it was for me as, as a dentist. I'd spent all my life um, basically not doing terribly much hard, you know, physical stuff. Um, yeah, what I used to do was before I went there was um, I used to do refereeing up at Knox and do two games of football um, in the morning in the season um, and maybe a bit of squash or something. But So I wasn't particularly fit. And I must admit, when the young Duntroon officers heard I was going to Vietnam, going to Canungra, they were laughing their heads off. They thought they, they really enjoyed this one. So you get there and, and it's up 4.30 every morning. It's cold every morning, freezing cold, and you're going flat out all day long. And every now and again, they want you to run, they want you to jog, you want you want to drop you into from heights into cold water with a full pack, rolling in mud, doing the whole work. So it was hard work. And then, and then even at the end, right at the end, they took us. They said we're all dressed up in our nice dress costumes for the final dinner and they said now you're going to pack it go back into your fatigues we're going on a 10 kilometer forced march and the benefit of that hard training really became clear to you on the last day it did it was it was quite amazing um 
we had been running around all day pretty well, and then they stopped us at uh, what was a gallery, shoot, a shooting gallery, and they said, okay, now we're going to, each of you are going to come forward, and on, on command, we want you to fire at all these different targets, you know, like blue bottle up there to the, to the left and little white duck down to the right, you know. And I remember just bringing my rifle to the, to the eye and I just fired, I just found what I wanted to shoot at, fired, fired, fired. I knew my mind was so still. And the instructor at the time, he said, well, I'm sorry, sir, but unfortunately this is not an official marking here, but he said, you had the marks for cross rifles, which is quite an honour to have in the army if you could get it. Anyway, he said I was at that standard. And I could tell my mind was still. That night... Went to the officer's mess, and uh, one of the chaps said, oh, let's have a game of pool. Have you ever played pool? And I said, no, I've never played pool. I didn't tell him I had played billiards before. We always had a billiard table in our house. <laughs> but I had played pool, you know, that's what I meant, you know. Anyway, he, he, uh, he said, okay. So we started playing, Tommy Rules, and I started, and I knew every time I lined up the balls, I knew exactly the angle. I didn't have to think about it. I knew I knew the angle, where to hit it, boom, and I just hit one ball after another into the pockets. By this time, he, <laughs> he was angry, and he said, you said you'd never played pool. I said, well, I, I haven't. I said, I played billiards, but I never played pool. <laughs> anyway, but the real, not, the real significance was that... Um, it was so, my mind was so still. I mean, I wouldn't normally, even though I played billiards, you know, often, I wouldn't have normally been able to hit balls like that. It was just so accurate. And you attribute the great training that they created for you, Abba yeah. Kanungra, for that. Yeah, the hard physical training absolutely made your mind still and alert. So you leave Kanungra and then you're off to Vietnam. Do you remember the journey there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, I got on to, it was a troop carrier, Sydney, the, the um, old um, HMA Sydney, which was an aircraft carrier, converted into a troop carrier. And I got on at Sydney, and only two army personnel got on at Sydney. It was the paymaster and myself, because we were due to go around to Adelaide to pick up the 9th Battalion, which was a newly formed battalion for Vietnam. And it, this was its first tour of duty. So I had to, um, uh, we got on there, but it so happened it called in at, in Melbourne just when the Melbourne Cup was on. So we to the Melbourne Cup, um, and then we went around to Adelaide, picked up the 9th Battalion, and my duty on board the ship was to be dentist uh, to look after the 9th Battalion. And where were you based in Vietnam? Well, I was based in Nui Dat. Well, we arrived in Bung Tau and they took me around Bung Tau and it was all the fish markets, everything was terrible smell and I had a day there. And then we went up to Nui Dat. See, Bung Tau is the, the, the support base, basically. The, the, uh, it's not the right word. Um, it's the, it's the uh, logistics base for the Australian Army. And then the actual battalions, of which there are always three up there, 
they're up at Nui Dat, which was about, I think, an hour and a half to two hours north, drive north. And so, and then a, a dentist was put living with the battalions, with, well, I was with one first battalion and fifth battalion, but they would alternate. There's another battalion, the Anzac Battalion, which was, they had a dentist too. Um, and then there was another dentist uh, at, at an admin position. And then we all, the three of us, looked after all the troops up there. And why was your role as a dentist significant? Well, that's historical. Going back to the, the Dental Corps was formed because, and I don't, can't remember was the First World War or the Second World War, that at, at any one time, one quarter of the fighting, the, the forward fighting troops were back behind the lines getting their teeth fixed up because of toothache and all the rest of it. So they formed the Dental Corps to keep the soldiers on the front line. So my duty in Vietnam, the whole thing was set up so that I could keep the men on the front line. And they would, so that they could come back, if they got a toothache, they'd come back from the front line by a helicopter. So, and then my dental surgery was virtually right next to the helipad, the dust-off area. So they would be, I'd be get a phone call in to say, I've got so-and-so coming in at so-and-so time. They would get off the helicopter, come straight into my surgery. I would fix them up. I'd ring admin straight away to say, so-and-so, so-and-so is now ready. He would walk back to the heli, heli, helicopter pad and they would bring in another helicopter to take him straight back to the front line. And so the idea was keeping all those men on the front line. That was our primary work. We had secondary stuff to do, but that was the primary work. And besides your primary dental commitment, of course, first and foremost, you were always a soldier, that you were still in a war zone and that you had your rifle with you in case insurgents broke through or something happened. Yes, we did. We did. We always had, I always carried a revolver. Um, you had to carry a revolver with you. But I also did have an SLR also. Um, but you've got to remember the, 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 um, the boundaries were, were very well protected. Um, there was always someone on duty the whole time. Um, and the, the, the likelihood of attacks at the fence were pretty, pretty unlikely. I mean, just twice we had rockets come in, but they knew that the Viet Cong or the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, didn't really have rockets. Um, and these sort of came in, but they fired they were off the mark, yeah. So besides the work you obviously did with their own troops, you did other civic action as well? Yes, yes. Civic action was, was of course, the idea was to try and get the... Um, get the locals on side. Now, if you went into a village, which is what we had to do, uh, you don't know who was Viet Cong. You wouldn't know the difference. So it could be, you could be in enemy territory. But I mean, I had a, a half a platoon always protecting me. Me and the doctor would go in. Um, sometimes we could, if the road was, they knew it was just being cleared, no mines, we'd take the Land Rover, which I always had at my disposal, to go into the villages that way. Or if the roads were mined or not, not known to be safe, uh, we went in by helicopter. 
and we'd be dropped into the village square. The village um, elder would sort of say, well, okay, um, there's doctor and dentist here. And so basically that's, that's what we did. We went in, basically my work was just taking out teeth. You know, it was, you couldn't fill teeth or anything. Just so many bad teeth because of the drinks, the Coca-Cola and everything I had. It was just all rotten. You just took out teeth that were causing them pain. But there's plenty of that. And basically that's what we did. But those villages were not safe. Um, and I'd like to give a, a good example, going back to my training at Canungra. In Canungra, they taught us what were booby traps. There'd be um, holes with bamboo spikes in them or the rest of it. But one of them was a, um, a, like a board about, say, about one and a half foot square of a skull and crossbones and beware. And they would say, go and pull that off that shed over there. And so someone would have to go and pull this skull and crossbones as a souvenir off the shed and bang, would go bang in your face. You know, it wouldn't hurt you, it was just a bang to scare you. So that, you know, that's what they do, they booby trap them. And I was in a village and I saw the skull and crossbones on the front of a little sort of a shed thing. And I have to admit, even then it came to my mind, that'd be great fun to have as a souvenir. And, and even one of my assistants said, oh, Skip, let's get that. And then I suddenly said, no. All the training from Canungra came in. I said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It could be booby-trapped. And then we all went back. And then uh, I got a story back when I came back and I was telling a story. One of the doctors that I actually trained with in Canungra, he actually did try to serve anyone and he got blinded. David, I, I imagine that the primary targets in a platoon would be the officer, the radio man, a doctor, a medic, a dentist. So even though you had a platoon around you, it must have been on your mind that you were a sitting duck, a target, and yes. therefore you had to be incredibly alert. Yes. And therefore you go into the danger zone and then you fortunately get through the day and you get back to your compound and you are supposedly secure, I can imagine it being a very restless night, you know, being finding it difficult to sort of try and settle down. Your nerves must have been running at 100 miles. It's very interesting. Um, but yes, you're right on the first statement. I, I certainly was aware that they knew I was an officer and they knew that, you know, I, I, I thought I did wonder whether I'd ever be a marked man. And the doctor was there too. But it was int interesting that um, you just accept it. You just accept it. Uh, you just take each day by itself. I mean, no, it, it, no I think, you know, there was no runoff. You, you went, to, went back home again and that was it. When you're talking danger, I think one of the, the most valiant people were the people from the Salvation Army. They used to go on dangerous roads with their Land Rover and trailer with cold drinks, find out where the Australian Army is. They sort of would know, and they'd go where everybody else would just chop it in. They'd go in with these Land Rovers along roads which are a bit dangerous just so the soldiers would have some refreshment and cold drinks. I mean, those chaps, that was real stuff. It was fantastic, yeah. I suppose the difficulty in treating 
the local people, as you said, was that it you couldn't distinguish friend from foe. No, you 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 wouldn't know. You just wouldn't know at all. I mean, the North Vietnamese Army were always in a uniform, but we never saw those. But the Viet Cong were local people who were just communists. They could be at night time fighting or, or being insurgents. Newly Dad was a secure complex, um, but did you have any other close calls? As I mentioned before, the, the rockets came in um, and, and so suddenly we was told, go to the pits. Well, everyone, there are pits all around all the place, which was basically dug, pits dug out and um, sort of a, a cover, cover over them with bags and a hole either end to get into. But uh, to be honest, nobody really went down there because we knew they were full of snakes. So um, <laughs> we, 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 we just sat at the top and hoped for the best, yeah. That was probably one of the most dangerous. Um, if I could just give a story that was... Pretty awful, though. Um, one night we got notice that one of the platoons, um, one of the young officers had led a platoon into a minefield. There's a village right near Nuidat, and there was a minefield around that village placed by the Australians. And it was at night time, and the officer apparently just misread the map. I don't know how it happened. But he led the men into the minefield and then realised he's in a minefield and went out again, and in the process he got killed. And I don't know how many other men got killed, but I think it was around about six or something or other. It could have even been more. And I remember when, you know, the news came back and it was a pretty sorry state in the officer's mess. You know, you knew that man, you just saw him yesterday. It was an awful story. Um, and just to think it was our own minefield. By the end of your time in Vietnam... Had any other people really changed? It was probably the most difficult part of being in Vietnam was what happened to people in Vietnam. Because you're sort of there, there are no women around, and the men, men are just looking to look after themselves. And there was a common, a common phrase which was used, it was called jackman. We'd say, he's a jackman. It means if, if you say, I'm all right, Jack, you know, I don't care about anybody else, I'm all right, Jack, I'm doing what I do. And so we'd say, oh, he's a jackman. And there was so much of that. The people just just looked after themselves, didn't care about anybody else. And there was this terrible sense of almost being isolated, almost that you were amongst people who you didn't know. They were just there and just doing your duty, you know. There was one night when um, I got a phone call up to the officer's mess saying, Oh, sir, so-and-so, so-and-so, um, who was my assistant, my assistant in the surgery, he'd gone mad in the actual mess. He'd actually upturned all the kitchen and, and the plates and the pots and everything. And then he sort of uh, went into the tents and was causing havoc in the tents. And he sounded pretty bad. So I then spoke to the major, the admin officer there, and I said, so what should I do that told him the situation? Should I get the MPs? And he said, oh, David, don't get the MPs. It's too much paperwork. He said, look, he said, see if you can go and just get him quietened down. Have a word to the doctor. So he spoke to the doctor. He said, he said, here, get him to take the sleeping tablets. So I went down there into the tent. And when I got in the tent, he held me up with a, a broken whiskey bottle and a machete in the corner of the tent. And everybody else was standing back, you know, like, 
So, and I said, well, you know, so, uh, so I understand you're not feeling very well, you know. So he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all this mumbling going on. I said, look, I've got some tablets here. It'll probably make you feel better. So uh, finally I got him to take the tablets and uh, he soon fell asleep. Next morning he wakes up, he comes into the surgery and says, oh, gee, Skip, I'm so sorry about yesterday. You know, I really hope it never happens again. And, and, you know, it was all like just a thing of the past, all over and done with. You mentioned that there was a funny story about the chap who actually replaced you in Vietnam. Well, what a coincidence, yeah. Um, David Coates, an old boy of Knox, um, he was in the same, so we were at the same school, really, we were in, a, in the same year at school and we were both boarders. Um, we both then went and did dentistry and then somewhere along the line he got just a year behind me and um, so he went to the army a year, one year later. And lo and behold, I'm told just when I'm about to leave Vietnam that David Coates is going to come over and take B-section, 33 dental unit for the next year. So he came in, he took over my surgery, took over my tent, and we had some a day or so together to familiarise and, and, and meet him. So that was the other, that was one. Uh, that was a great uh, thing to happen with David. And David and I often talk about the similarity of that. Um, and then, because the other person who I met over there w was uh, um, Rex Ward. And, and Rex, another um, um, gentleman who was in my boy, who was in my uh, year at school, I met him down in the um, recreation bar down, a bit down at Vung Tau. Went down there for a few days' recreation. I was just standing at the bar and I just said, oh, look, yeah, looking around when I, after audit, look down. We both looked at each other and, you know, Rex, Dave, how are you? And it was so wonderful because, you know, when you've had all these jack men around you and you you, you think, oh, gosh, this is getting a bit, you know, sort of, you think that, is there anyone around who's sort of you can relate to? Suddenly you had someone who you knew you were thinking on the same way. It was so nice. It was so nice to see Rex then. After 365 days in Vietnam, your time was up. On the 366th day, you were on your way back home. How did your military service wind up from there? I came back, um, had about, I think I had about ooh, eight weeks leave. Then I had about four days to serve. So I went to Holsworthy for a day. They didn't know what to do with me. And then they said, well, okay, then I go out and get demobbed, went to Victoria Barracks to do, fill in some forms, went out to South Head to get my medical, and I think the next day he'll put my uniform in, and that was it. Coming home in late 69, public debate about the Vietnam War would have been fierce. How was your reception back home? None of my family ever asked me anything about my service. You spoke to anyone, no one wanted to know. I went into where there were two other dentists who were over there about the same time as me. We both, all three of us, rented a, a flat at Balmoral and we stayed together for 18 months. We went to the local RSL club to play billiards at Camaray. We hardly got a reception there at all. You just couldn't make a friend with anybody. No one wanted to know you and no one wanted to know what you did. It was, it was a real sense of rejection. 
uh, which I understand then was a very common thing for most people. It was a whole mood had been promulgated through the media everywhere that Vietnam veterans were, n- were not worth knowing. And so you weren't accepted. You know, I mean, what did they do? What they do? What did they, the uh, postal office wouldn't deliver our mail to Vietnam? They were all part of that sort of political sort of thinking, thinking, well, they don't believe in Vietnam and they won't, wouldn't send us our mail to such an extent that there were signs all around Vietnam saying, punch a postie on RTA, which was, RTA was a return to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> David, your blind luck in choosing to live with other Vietnam veterans gave you a safe space that you could not have foreseen that you actually needed. No, well, well, that's right. It would have been if I hadn't, if the three of us hadn't come together, and in fact there may have been a bit of foresight in that, that we realised we'd be lonely without it. The three of us came together and said, well, what say we, you know, rent a place together? We all said, oh, what a good idea. I, I would have been... A very, a very lonely person. I would have been a very lonely person at that time. I could definitely say that now that, I mean, I hadn't thought about it much, but there wouldn't have been people to relate to. I mean, we, we virtually did everything together. We, we built a boat together. We built a, a big fireball boat together. We got a kit and built this boat up out on the veranda. On Sunday, we'd put a roast in the oven uh, on the morning, Sunday morning, and, and go off play billiards um, at the Camaray uh, RSL Club for about three hours, then come back and have lunch and and then spend the afternoon together. We often um, would go out on Saturday nights and um, uh, there were some, some, uh, some girls who worked in some of the practices who we'd go out with. So, yeah, we kept ourselves busy that way, but... Um, it was otherwise, yeah, would have been pretty lonely. And, and David, you continued your career in dentistry? Yes, yes. I, uh, I had a few, about 18 months here in, in Sydney, working in a suburban practice. And, uh, and then I went over to England and I did my master's degree in um, periodontics over there um, at London University. Uh, and I came back here, set up a practice. Well, I bought a newly started practice in Linfield, and I've been there ever since, 43 years later. So, David, how do you look back and feel about your time in Vietnam today? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, um, I look back on it now as, um, I think, just an experience. Um, but what I think, what I really learned if I learned anything from Vietnam, it was that you see the men around you lose the veneer of living in society. And I wasn't expecting this. Now, when, when there's no women around, there's no social um, requirements around, everyone started operating from a much more basic level in their being, which had very little respect for each other. Now, I'm only talking in the camp itself. I'm not talking about the camaraderie of men fighting together. I'm talking about in a camp. And 
it was pretty raw stuff. And what you realized was that most of us in our society are operating with a veneer, a veneer to make ourselves look respectable and, and to be acceptable to the world. But underneath that can be a fairly raw, selfish being. And that probably was the, the hardest lesson I've learned. Well, David, what I've learned from you is that you certainly didn't go jack on your mates. Thank you for talking with us today. Mm, thank you, Angus. A pleasure. That was Angus Horden speaking with Vietnam veteran David Leaf. To hear more from David, check out this Friday's upcoming bonus episode called My Teacher, My Hero with Rex Ward. It's a really special collection of short interviews in that one. If you like this episode, please make sure you're subscribed to get all content. And if you have a spare moment, please give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps other people discover the show. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>